Okay. Good morning. For those of you who are joining us on the bottom floor, just consider this like an upgrade to business class. It's good to see your eyeballs this morning and uh, good to worship with you. Good to open up this amazing passage of scripture in, uh, in Mark chapter 5. Um, I didn't include this originally in my sermon, but just listening to this passage read again, I'm reminded of the, uh, of the words of the late Frederick Beekner, who said this, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things happen, be not afraid. Uh, this is a beautiful and terrible story. Uh, it is far more than we can cover in the short amount of time that we have. I wish we had more time. Um, but this is a story that really is culminating a series of stories in which fearful people find Jesus. Let me say that again. Jesus finds fearful people. I was thinking about fear this week. Uh, a friend of mine is a pastor in St. Louis, where we just moved from. Uh, and uh, about two years ago, he was driving home to his home in the city and uh, pulled into the parking spot outside of his house, his row house. And as he was backing in, he pulled parallel to another car. It was full of young men. When they saw him, they assumed that uh, he was catching them in uh, the act of, of, of some deal gone wrong. And they pulled out guns and they began shooting and they riddled his car with bullets. He drove away. They drove away. And somehow he escaped that moment uh, with his life. He was injured, but he's recovered from his injury and testifies to the protective hand of the Lord. Just last week, his daughter, a student at that school in St. Louis where there was a shooting just about four or five days ago, is fine as well, thankfully. Some of you uh, read about that shooting, but she was a student at that school almost two years after that family already went through that terrifying ordeal. And I thought to myself, like, you know, I see it on Facebook, so, you know, I'm not going to post anything on Facebook about it other than just maybe we're praying for you. But even that just falls so far short of what you say in moments when people are in terror for their life or the life of their children. Like, what do you say in those, in those moments? Some of you for a living uh, talk to people who find themselves in those crisis situations. Maybe you are in law enforcement or the medical profession. For those of us who are called to be pastors, we often enter into those kind of situations or the direct aftermath of those situations in hospital rooms and in homes and uh, at gravesides. We, we enter into situations in which people are terrified. And I'm always asking myself and praying that the Lord would show me, what do you say? Now, uh, I don't know that I have a great list of things you should say. I have a very lengthy list of things, what, you shouldn't say. We can go over that in the back if you'd like to go through that list. Maybe you have things people have said to you in those moments, and you would say, those are things I did not need to hear. They may have been absolutely true and well-meaning, but they were not helpful. Now, if I didn't know any better, if I didn't know who was saying these words, I would put near the top of the list of things you should not say in situations like this, what Jesus says in this passage. The moment this man finds out that his daughter has died, what does Jesus say in verse 36? 
Do not fear, only believe. When Jesus says those words, uh, he better back those words up. That's an incredible thing to say to somebody who just received the worst news that a parent can receive. And yet because they come from Jesus, their words this morning that we need to listen to as well. They actually give us the key to what all of us need to hear, whether we find ourselves in a crisis of fear this morning or just living in that sort of perpetual chronic fear that keeps you up late at night, that has you staring at the ceiling at two in the morning, no good reason, but there you are as if all of us understand something about living with fear of what might happen or what might might not happen. Jesus comes to us this morning and says, do not fear, only believe. So for us to hear those words well, let me pray for us and ask God to help us as we open his word together. Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired these words, to now open our hearts that we might live in light of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before you uh, cross-stitch verse 36 and hang it on your wall, does it cross-stitch, does that mean anything to anybody? Maybe to a few of you, all right, uh, I'm hitting some of you. Or if you took, you know, want to take a picture of it and put it on your screensaver for your phone, maybe this, this, this becomes your new life verse or verse of the week. Before you do that, you have to understand the context of what Jesus is saying. Uh, and this is what Mark's book has been all about from the very beginning. He's not just giving us like pithy sayings of Jesus or greatest hits of Jesus's life or things he spoke into a vacuum or, or in some other world in which spiritual truth needs to be uh, somehow uh, pulled down out of the sky. Jesus is speaking, Mark says, and then he's backing it up. So we need to know who Jesus is, but we need to see who Jesus is. And so in this passage, Jesus does some talking, but he does, he does a lot of acting. That's the context of what he says. That's the reason it's powerful, because Jesus can back up even a statement like this. That in the moment of our greatest fears coming true, even at the end of our lives, Jesus can say, do not fear only believe. And we can trust him when he says that. And here's why. Because in this passage, Mark shows us that Jesus makes two stops and offers one solution. He makes two stops and offers one solution. Stop number one uh, is the stop that he makes with a man who is named for us in the passage named Jairus. Now, what I want to show you, first of all, in this passage, because it happens twice, is the comment by Mark that once again, Jesus is being surrounded by a great crowd. Verse 21, when Jesus crossed again to the boat on the other side, he steps off the boat and into a great crowd. It's like Jesus steps off the boat on the Sea of Galilee and into a vast sea of people. They're everywhere. It's a mob scene. People are pressing in on him, bumping into him, trying to get close to him. They're everywhere. And yet Jesus stops for one man. And just a good reminder for us at the very beginning of this passage that uh, here we are. This isn't exactly a vast sea of people, but we're, we're close right now. We're becoming friends. 
we're bumping into each other. Uh, even in a group this small, if I can say it that way, we often feel like we're just a face in the crowd, you know? Like people don't really know us. We just kind of move in and out of crowds without being known or understood. And at the very beginning of this passage, just by shifting the camera angle from the drone shot of the vast crowd to the zoomed in shot of one man, we are reminded that, that God doesn't deal with us just as vast seas of people. He deals with us personally and individually as a father. And so here Jesus is... Uh, is, is, is brought into this man's life immediately. We're told he is a ruler of a synagogue. What that means is that he was the president of the synagogue. He was the superintendent. He was in charge of everything that happened at this local house of worship for the Jewish people. It meant he was a big deal. Like he was admired, respected, influential. And yet in this moment, he is coming to Jesus. And Mark makes sure that we're visualizing what's happening here. Uh, in verse 22, Jairus comes to him, sees Jesus, falls at his feet, you know, puts his face in the ground, and he implores him earnestly. We might say he begs him. You know, so here's a guy, a man, a person. All of us are working very hard to be like, you know, to be admired, to be influential, to be successful. Uh, to be a person of good standing in the community. We're all working hard. We're putting in the hours and putting in the time and paying our dues to be this kind of person. And yet right away, we are met with the fact, and it's not just true of him, it's also true of us, that at some point, your resources for fixing your life are going to run out. One person has put it this way, God's address is at the end of your rope. And that's where Jesus finds this man. Much to everyone else's surprise, perhaps, here is this very dignified man all of a sudden throwing himself on the ground before Jesus and begging. Why is he begging? Well, we can understand why. Because as he reports, his daughter is at the point of death. The, the language there is actually she is reaching the end. And the implication is if Jesus doesn't go and he doesn't go now, she's not going to make it. And so Jesus, in his kindness... Verse 24 goes with him. Stop number one. Stop number two. Notice what happens in the second part of verse 24. The camera zooms out again. We're back to the drone shot. We're reminded it's a vast sea of people, and yet we get a zoomed-in perspective on one woman in the crowd. Verse 25. There was a woman. By the way, we never get her name. Unlike Jairus, we're never told her name. She's not a person of prominence or importance or influence. All we get is a diagnosis or at least a symptom because no one can seem to diagnose and cure what she has. We're told in verse 25, she had a discharge of blood and she'd had it for 12 years. As long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman had been suffering. 12 years. We're not given the details of what was actually going on with her medically. What we are told is that she had suffered under many physicians. Not, that's not a dig at physicians. That's just to say she tried one after another after another. And we're told also she had spent everything she had to try to fix the problem. And it's not like things had kind of leveled out or gotten a little bit better. What are we told? It's worse. 
And what makes it worse is that this isn't just a physical condition for her. So it wasn't just that she was in discomfort or in pain. Uh, In the Jewish community, this was a social problem because the Jewish community was governed by the Old Testament law, including the ceremonial cleanliness laws. You can go read about those in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 15, for instance, tells us that if you find yourself in this condition, with the discharge of blood, whether man or woman, you are unclean. That means that she couldn't go to Jairus' synagogue on the Sabbath. She wasn't allowed in, or the Passover, or any of the feasts for that matter. In fact, she couldn't touch anybody or have anyone touch her. Otherwise, she would render them unclean. So some of us got a taste of this. Well, I guess all of us got a taste of something like this a couple years ago during the pandemic. You know, uh, it wasn't just the physical illness and the fear that went along with that. It was the fact that many of us were alone and or at least cut off from people that we wanted to be with. Maybe not completely alone, but certainly separated from one another. There were social consequences as well as physical consequences. Well, this is that and then some. And no wonder she has spent everything that she has to try to fix this problem to no avail. And yet for her, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus also stops. Now these might seem like two very different stops along the way for Jesus. One, the president of the synagogue. The other, someone who isn't allowed in. One person who is highly successful. One person who is not really successful in life at all. One person who seeks Jesus' healing touch, the other, as we sang a moment ago, basically tries to steal it. One person everybody noticed and thought they knew, but had come to the end of his resources. The other, completely anonymous. We don't even get her name. And she too has come to the end of her resources. And Jesus stops for both. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't exactly encourage us to stop and see people. Well, we live in a city that doesn't encourage us to stop or let anyone merge, but that's kind of a whole different story. But that's actually a pretty good, let's just go with that. That's actually a pretty good analogy for what we're encouraged to do within our own cultural moment. We're told to speed past and scroll past people who can do nothing for us, right? And that means people who disagree with us. I mean, they certainly don't get the time of day. Maybe we give time and attention to those who can advance us or move us along or get us in the right group of people. But Jesus is doing something countercultural then and now. He is stopping both the person who seems super important and the person who obviously is not. Both of them get his attention because both of them matter. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, it means you need to follow Jesus and you need to stop with Jesus too. Uh, And Jesus stops a lot because Jesus cares a lot. Um, You know, it's sort of like your family trip Your eight-hour trip, well, you're thinking, sorry, you're thinking it's going to be an eight-hour trip. You really want it to be an eight-hour car ride, but you kind of size up who's in the car, and you're like, there's just no way this is happening in eight hours, no matter how much you want it, because you know there are stops to be had, right? 
That's just the way it is. You're going to stop. When you are with Jesus and you're seeking to follow him and you're listening to the Holy Spirit in your life, you are going to stop more than you probably would want to stop because Jesus cares deeply for people. And his expectation for us as those Jesus stopped for is that we would stop for others. We would see them. That we would see them. That we would see each other, church. That we wouldn't be in such a rush. That we wouldn't speed past, scroll past, walk past. We would see each other. And not just each other, but that we would be embedded in communities around this city in which we are people who stop. Okay, not just to be nice. It's good to be nice. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not what Jesus is about. He's not gathering groups of nice people to be nice to other people so that we would just be nice people. What is he about in this passage? He's making these two stops in order to give one solution. The solution that neither of these people realized they needed. Let's talk about what this woman thought she needed first. She is desperate. We could say she is in despair. I mean, despair is basically the absence of hope. Uh, I read a, uh, a couple articles this week about um, the number one internet search in Russia right now. Maybe some of you saw this. The number one internet search in Russia right now, or at least it's the one that's most quickly growing, how to break your arm. And the reason for that is hundreds of thousands of men who are being conscripted into the Russian army to go fight in Ukraine don't want to do it. And so they're trying to do whatever they can not to serve. They are taking desperate measures. This woman, we have to understand, is taking a desperate measure. She's exhausted all of her options to fix the one problem she believes needs to be solved. And I think we would all agree with her. She's exhausted all of her options. And you can even hear it in what she says in verse 28. She says, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And so she kind of sneaks up behind Jesus makes her way toward him, grabs onto his cloak, and we're told, and here's Mark's favorite word again, we get it a few times in this passage, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. Now we read that and, we're, and we say, well, that's a great story. I mean, that could be the end of the story, right? She needed to be healed. Jesus healed her. Jesus is in a hurry, by the way. Right? Have we forgotten the stopwatch has already started at the beginning of the story? And everyone is, is kind of hoping that they can get there a little faster. And yet Jesus doesn't end her story there. What does he do? He stops. And he asks in verse 30, who touched my garments? Now, I love this about this story. I love the disciples like show up like once or twice in this story. I'm not really sure what they're doing most of the time here. But they, they ask the question probably all of us would, would ask, which is, seriously? Like, that's the question you're asking. You've got one of the most important people in the community who has asked you to help her, his daughter. And like, 
we're in a hurry. We've got to get there now. And what you want to know is who touched your garment? I mean, look around. The more productive question would be, raise your hand if you haven't touched Jesus in the last five minutes. Raise that many people around. The one person who didn't find this moment very amusing, besides Jairus, by the way, we'll get to him in a moment, is this woman. Because she was hoping for like an anonymous drive-by healing. That's what she was going for. And instead, Jesus says, who touched my garments? The disciples are like, why are you asking? She's like, yeah, why would you ask that? And then we have this wonderful detail in verse 32. Jesus looks around once, and after the disciples asked it, Jesus ignores them in verse 32, and he kept looking around to see who had done it. And she figures, well, look, if he could heal me, chances are he can probably figure out who I am. And so she comes forward in fear and in trembling, we're told, and told him the whole truth. Now, I'm so curious what the whole truth entailed. I mean, sure, it it had to do with a couple seconds ago, I thought maybe I'd just grab onto you, but I have to think it's more than that, right? Like, I have to think it's the whole truth of the last 12 years, like the whole ordeal of what she's been through and what she's tried and what she's endured. And Jesus patiently listens to all of it. And then he says to her in verse 34, daughter, don't miss that word. We, we never get her name, but, but we do get this. Jesus looks at her with tenderness and calls her daughter. That's the kind of king you follow. The sort who, who has the power, like literally reverberating off him, the power to heal diseases and as we'll see, even overcome death itself and yet his heart is a heart of tenderness toward the weak and the vulnerable and the hurting and people in this room who find themselves even today in a place of borderline despair Like I've tried everything and nothing has made me well and I don't know what to do. Like maybe today feels like your last shot, like you're just gonna take one last shot to see if Jesus can heal the hurt, the wound. And Jesus' first word is not a word of condemnation, it's a word of grace, daughter, son. But there's something else going on here. Jesus could have let this go. He could have let this be an anonymous drive-by healing, couldn't he? I mean, it's kind of like if I were to ask you, um, right on the top of your bulletin, and then put it in your pocket or your pocket or your purse or whatever, and don't show anybody, like, what is the one thing that, if Jesus fixed this one thing in your life, you'd be good. Like, you'd never ask for something ever again. I know you're way too spiritual to think like that. Okay, I'm sorry to like put it on the lower shelf, but let's just say the one thing, even if it's not that dramatic, the one thing that you've been praying, maybe for 12 years, maybe for 12 days, maybe for 12 hours, Lord, if you could fix this, my life would be everything I want it to be. Like, and then what if Jesus gave it to you immediately and you walked away? Like, would that, would that be all you need? 
You see, Jesus knows that this woman, as much as she is in despair and hurting and suffering, and he, 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 he feels every bit of that, he knows she needs more than just his healing touch. She needs him, you see. She needs everything he brings, the solution he brings to all of our woundedness and our brokenness and our need. And as we'll see in just a moment, we need him in the moment that is coming for all of us, which is the moment of death. You see, that one we've got no answers for. So Jesus calls her out, he draws her out, he brings her into conversation because he's after her heart. And this brings us to the the second need that requires a solution. Um, Again, Mark does such a wonderful job moving the story along, but also just helping us feel the feels here, right? Verse 35, while he was still speaking, like he's still speaking to her when the messengers show up from Jairus' house. And the message is not a good one. The message is, it's too late. Let's just clarify that. I mean, you, you get the subtext. Jesus is too late. Where have you heard that before? Jesus is too late. She's gone. He can just go home. Don't, don't, don't even waste his time anymore. And it's now, see, now we finally caught up to the beginning of the sermon. It's now that he says, he turns to this father whose heart has just caved in and is broken. And he says to him, do not be afraid, only believe. And then let's just fast forward through what happens next. He leaves the crowd behind. He takes Peter, James, and John, his three best buddies. He takes mom and dad. They leave the crowd. They go through the crowd of mourners outside, the commotion outside of Jairus' house. There's a little back and forth there. He leaves them in the dust as well. He goes into the house. He goes into her room. He goes next to her bed. And the very next thing he does, Mark tells us, is he takes her hand. He takes her hand. And he speaks to her. Now, the words that are recorded here, and the reason they're kind of in that funny language, is these are words in the New Testament, in the original language, that are in Aramaic. This would have been the language that Jesus would speak to Peter, James, and John with. I mean, this is like their everyday language. Most of the New Testament is written in Greek. These words are retained in Aramaic. And we don't exactly know why. It happens a few times in the New Testament. But it seems to me, and scholars, I think, would probably agree with this suggestion that, that, there's, that um, Mark is, is reminding us that, that this, these are eyewitness accounts. And Peter was in the room, and Peter was probably the main source for the gospel of Mark. And so when Peter years later is telling this story to Mark, it's like those words are like burned in his brain. But they're also tender words. The word Talitha is it's translated little girl. It's um, Tim Keller in his commentary on this passage says it's, it's, it's like a pet name or a term of endearment. So it would be like honey or sweetheart. Honey or sweetheart. And then the word kumi, that, that command, um, you know, I know it has resurrection implications in our brain, but the word really just means get up. There's another word for resurrection, but it just means get up. And so what Keller does is he kind of reconstructs this moment. He says, you know, this, this would be a moment that would happen just about every day. It's like when you have little kids, uh, you know, if you're a nice parent, 
right? You don't just kick in the door or something like that, but you know, you walk in tenderly and you, and, and, and you rub your child's back and you say, honey, it's time to get up. And Keller points out that Jesus' power is such that here he is, standing next to this girl who has just died, facing off with death itself, the greatest enemy of humanity, and his power is such that all he needs to say to her is, honey, it's time to get up. Because when Jesus has your hand, death itself is like falling asleep. Isn't that what he tells the crowd? Isn't that what he gets laughed at? Why are you making a commotion and weeping? Verse 39, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Reminds me of uh, that moment in um, Tolkien's Return of the King at the very end of the book. Sam and Frodo are back from their great adventure. They've been plucked off Mount Doom by by the eagles and brought into a place of beauty and rest and joy and Uh, Tolkien narrates what it was like for Sam to wake up. So Sam wakes up. He's one of the heroes of the story, this little hobbit who's been through hell and back. And um, when he wakes up, you know, it's sort of like he wakes up and he he assumes that everything that happened was a dream. He's like, well, that was a pretty weird dream and pretty scary and pretty terrifying. And then he sees Frodo lying next to him and he realizes, well, no, actually all of this happened and all the, all the memories come flooding back to him in that moment. And, uh, and then he hears a voice, it's Gandalf. And he turns around, there's Gandalf in his white robes and, and he's got a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. And Gandalf says to him, Sam, how are you feeling? And Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music, like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. And it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Waking up in the presence of the joyful, powerful Lord Jesus. I mentioned a couple times that today is Reformation Sunday, and that means that we are remembering and celebrating the great truths that that were recovered at that time in history. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But don't let that faith part fool you, okay? The whole point of that phrase and everything else that came out of the Reformation is to remind us that our salvation is not based on what we can conjure up. It's not based on anything we do. It's based completely on the great and glorious Lord who came to rescue us from our sin, deliver us from death, and bring us into his presence with great joy. That means that this morning, what you're being called to by this passage It's not to size up your faith, to see if it's strong enough or if it's pure enough. You've looked both of the examples in this passage, I would say moderate to perhaps below average examples of faith from both of these people. No, faith is powerful because of the object of our faith. That's the point of the story. It's 
The reason Jesus can say, do not fear, only believe, is because we're believing in the one who has the power over death. And so we say, and so we sing, in Christ alone, we do not fear. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Lord Jesus, who is a king who can conquer all our enemies and, and who is also a king who is tender-hearted, who heals us, who calls us son or daughter, who's, who has stepped into this beautiful and terrible world so that we might not be afraid. Help us, Lord. Help our unbelief, we pray. Give us faith, even faith to move mountains because that faith is clinging to you, our Lord our King and our Rock. We pray all these things in the strong name of Christ and God's people said together, Amen. Amen.